Welcome along to episode number 58 of the Carp Chronicles podcast. In this episode, we have John Llewellyn joining us for a two-part series to chat about a variety of topics, such as carp macronutrient requirements, receptor density in older carp, rig lengths, flavor levels, and a whole lot more. Of course, this podcast is going to be quite bait heavy. Um, for those of you who know John, I mean, he's extremely well respected in the bait world. So uh, yeah, this is pretty much just about bait. However, even if you don't make your own bait, I think everyone's going to learn in this episode for sure. For those of you who don't know who John is, he's a big carp and barbel angler. Uh, he also owns a company called Big Carp, who sell a variety of very high quality baits across Europe predominantly in France, but he's now branching out into other countries such as Italy, Belgium, etc. He's also the first Olympian that we've had on our show, having competed in no less than three Olympics, uh, 1980, 1984 and 1988. So as you can imagine, he's a man who takes his hobbies very, very seriously. Um, and I think anyone listening to this, you're going to take away numerous nuggets of gold from this interview. Now, before we jump in, of course, I need to proudly announce my sponsor, and I have a new one. Jungle Warfare Clothing has decided to hop on board and support this podcast and make these episodes possible. So, big thank you to Jungle Warfare Clothing. If you haven't come across these guys, I urge you to check them out. You can find them at junglewarfare.co.uk and all of the usual social media channels as well, Instagram, Facebook, etc., now, they kindly sent me some products ahead of sponsoring the podcast, um, and I can honestly say, and I mean this, the quality is excellent, um, the designs are original, and the clothing looks just as good down the pub as it does on the bank. Uh, the main trouble that I've had is my wife keeps wearing one of the tops. Um, I haven't actually been able to wear that one out there, but luckily they sent me a few bits, so uh, yeah, I've been able to sport some of their stuff little heads up for you all check out their marley top um, which is quite unique i haven't seen anything like it before um, but it's a bit of a standout piece for them um, it's really really warm it's compact as well i just keep it in my car 24 7 um, if i ever need to just pop something on that's warm comfortable and practical as well and that's it go check them out i'm really impressed with them i really like them they're also really lovely lads as well the branding's good the clothing is good quality it just looks good stuff so go ahead urge you to check them out junglewarfare.co.uk as well as those guys of course we have the super impressive target baits supporting the show i now use these guys for the majority of my bait making supplies because they offer super fresh ingredients which is i don't know about you but really important to me i don't want to be using things that are just sat in a factory for half a year these guys have lovely fresh ingredients that are super high quality and also the postage is really quick and very reasonably priced definitely the cheapest place um, regarding postage so yeah really really good you can actually make further savings um, at targetbaits.co.uk if you use our special code at checkout which is chronicles 10 so when you go to your checkout there's a little place for you to put a discount code pop in chronicles 10 and that will give you 10 percent off at targetbaits.co.uk that's it for the intro let's jump in i really really did enjoy this episode um and hopefully we get to do another one in the future john is a super interesting guy i just cannot say good enough things about him uh, lovely bloke and extremely knowledgeable as well so i hope you enjoy this interview with john llewellyn john welcome along to the podcast 
Oh, well, thanks for inviting me. It's a rainy day and it's uh, carp and carp fishing. Talking about that, what could be better? I know, absolutely. And I know I said uh, on the lead up to this, I, I, traditionally we have a tip of the episode and you picked up on that. And uh, yeah. as we're recording in the daytime, it is now 12.30. I said, oh, I won't be having any alcohol. I'll just have a tea. And I've changed my mind on you, which I feel bad yeah, about. You, you tricked me. I've got a cup of tea. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're welcome to grab a, a, a Guinness or what have you. But, I might go um, get, a, get, a, get a can of Guinness if, if we have a break. <laughs> go for it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so I am uh, I'm just about to tuck into, I don't know if anyone's familiar with this. This is going to sound like an advert. It's not, but there's a company called Beer 52, and they send you um, a box of beer once every, however often you want it. Um, and they, they've just lured me back into a subscription. So it's one of those, uh, and it's a steeplechase pale ale from Round the Corner Brewing Company. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, and you're on a tea. I'm afraid I'm on a I'm on a builder's tea. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll catch up later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. Yeah, please do. Um, I mean, this is for for those people, and I'm sure there's many listening that know you. I, the, the, probably in for a very diverse chat and it's probably going to be pretty much all based around bait and <laughs> car behavior and other other kind of shoots off from that yes. um we've spoken a few times on the lead up to this <laughs> podcast and i know something that you're very passionate about and interested in and i know you wanted to cover it is how carp actually go about finding their food um, what it is they're looking for um, and obviously what that means to us anglers and, and how we can use that to our advantage. Yeah. Should we, should we start? I know that's a huge topic in its, in itself, yeah, but should we start there? Itself. I know you've, you've got some interesting ideas about this. Yeah. I think it's a really good place to start because it leads off into all sorts of other places that we can, uh, we can go into in sort of more detail, but um, to give a little bit of the sort of how this came about, um, I've always been interested in, in bait and the bait side of fishing in general, particularly carp fishing. Um, but going back about 15 years or so, I was asked to do a talk at the um, Big Carp Italy show and they uh, they wanted to know what the title of the talk was going to be. And, and I said, well, I'd really like to talk about um, big carp and how to target the bigger fish um, in terms of bait and approach and methods and so on. So... That was the uh, the subject of the talk, and you know that at that time it was still sort of traditional slides and 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 talking to the talking to the audience and um, question and answer thing at the end, and 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 it all went really well. Lots of questions and answers, which was which was really good. But I did my talk, so I concentrated on things like um, uh, spread baiting patterns with boilies, where you're going to sp spread them out over a large area to get the fish moving around. Um, that's that's a, a sort of big fish approach. Um, low flavor levels. Why? Why? And we went into a little bit about why that may be something that big carp, um, in particular, will be interested in, and it's mm. something we'll talk about, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, things like you've got a baited area and you've got a spare rod, so you think, well, what will I do with this one? I know I'll stick a stringer on it and chuck it out further or down the margin or something. And that's the rod that you, well, you tend to get more bites on the baited area maybe, but when the one that's off on its own rips off, it, it, it's quite often a much bigger fish. Yeah. Um, or perhaps fishing singles. Um, various ways of trying to, to approach catching the bigger fish. So I did my talk and then afterwards, um, 
uh, a guy came up to me, an Italian called Armando Piccini, uh, who's a fish, I found out, was a fish biologist, a specialist uh, who lives in Italy. And he said, you really must come and listen to my talk because what I'm going to talk about will um, explain the science behind what you've just explained works. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that's a, now that is going to be interesting. So I sat through his uh, hour-long talk and that then formed the basis for a, an ongoing sort of friendship um, since then because it's fascinating. And he spoke about the subject that you just brought up, which is how the fish um, find their food, what they're looking for, even down to the point of how they actually eat it, which is actually really interesting as well. But initially he was talking about what the fish are looking for. So all living animals have got a metabolism. They need to um, produce energy to move. They need to be able to grow, to repair damaged tissue and so on. So they've got a metabolism and that metabolism produces um, excreta or crap that goes into the water and urine so it goes into the water and and that excreta that goes into the water is basically broken down food um, and it creates a type of soup if you like in the water and that soup is broken down food so the proteins in the food that are being broken down are go, going to become peptides uh, basically amylas say amino acids for now um, sugars fats there might be pheromones there might be um, bile salts there could be um, other other elements that are in that soup and that and the fish begin to recognize that as a smell that represents food because bloodworm crayfish snails larvae they're all living organisms they're all producing this excreta that goes into the water creating this sort of soup so fish begin to recognize the let's call it a smell or the olfaction of this soup and they recognize as, as that as being a, a food source so they will swim towards it and uh, the more that the fish as the fish grow and they get bigger they begin to hone in more and more on that smell because initially the little carp no one's there to tell them what they've got to eat so they, they tend to eat anything they'll they'll have a go they'll try it whether it's a a bit of gravel or a branch or a leaf or whatever it happens to be they'll try it they'll begin to realize um because uh, it's inherent within them they begin to realize what is food and what isn't and you can imagine as the fish get bigger they begin begin to realize what is actually the food and they begin to hone let's call it skills um hone their chemoreception down to certain elements that they know will represent their food um so when you've got a bloodworm bed or a, or a bunch of mussels or, 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 or larvae in the silt, they're producing this um, smell into the water. And that's what the carp begin to recognise as food. And they basically they've got a, a means of detecting that smell um, called olfaction. It's to do with their taste buds and they can smell at a distance so the, the, as long as there's a current moving these smells towards the fish, the fish can detect them on their taste buds and particularly in the nasal passages, which are designed specifically to pick, pick up the amino acids, especially the free amino acids in the water. And the fish will then begin to swim along the concentration levels of that smell towards the source. And then when they get to the source, 
what's what Armando explained that I found absolutely fascinating because I didn't know at that time exactly what the carp do. Okay, we know they open their mouth and they suck suck it in and they swallow it via their pharyngeal teeth to break it break it down. But what's interesting is they the carp get closer and closer to their food following the concentration of the smell when they get near their food they've got these those projectile lips and their gills they can open the gills open their mouth and it sucks the water in and when the food goes into their mouth it goes in with silt and gravel and leaves and all sorts and this then it gets, gets the bit that i didn't realize happens the fish pushes its it's got a tongue in the bottom of its mouth that it pushes the food it sucked in up to the palate which is on the roof of the mouth. So inside the mouth, there's an area called the palate at the top of the mouth, a bit like us, same same sort of thing. And the, But the carp is pushing its food against the palate. And what it does then is it holds, this is all happening in the sort of blink of an eye, but it holds the food, could be a boil, it could be a, a bloodworm or a snail, whatever, against the roof of the mouth. And it, begin, it does backwashing. And the backwashing is... By opening and closing its mouth and its gills, it washes water backwards and forwards, which begins to remove silt and particles from around the food. The food, and, it, and you've seen carp feeding when you see stuff coming out of their gills or out of their mouth. Well, that's all the rubbish they don't want to eat. But the stuff they do want to eat is held in the mouth against the palate. And interestingly, the palate is where the taste buds on the palate are there's the biggest um, volume or concentration of taste buds are in the palate and what the fish is doing as well as backwashing it's pushing the food item against its palate so it can use its gustatory or its taste taste mechanism to determine to a certain extent the value of that food it's actually looking for the nutritional side of what is what is it's holding against the roof of its mouth now if it's not not of any interest it spits it back out with all the other crap. And if it likes it and it's something of interest to eat, it sucks it back to its frangial teeth, crushes it up and swallows it. Um, now, no one had ever explained that to me before, that that's the mechanism of how it happens. And I thought, I, mean, that's, it, it, I actually found that really fascinating that that's what it's doing. Um, just as a little aside, it brings in something we'll, we can talk about later. I'm sure we will. Carp, all fish, from the time they're tiny till they get big, learn to spit out stuff they don't want to eat along the mechanism that I've just, just described. So if you imagine it, a fish has sucked in your bait, whatever it may be, that bait's got a hook attached to it. Now that hook is something it doesn't want to eat. So if it's in its mouth for too long, it'll spit it out along with your bait. Um, we'll come back to it because there's, I want to go into detail about that because it's relevant with the way that we present our bait and the way to make presentation most effective. Sure. But um, there you go. I think that's a, that's a start to our conversation. No, it's interesting. And I, I'm trying to remember which episode it was, but we, I think we've spoken about the palatal organ before. Um, mm. <clears throat> as I understand it, there's little kind of protrusions, kind of like little fingers up there, isn't there? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not a scientific expert in any shape or form, yeah. but you're right that I've seen pictures, close up pictures of the taste buds and so on. I remember you did a podcast with Patrick Mills and you, Dr. Patrick Mills, and you've done them with various other people. But in the way they describe it, which is, I think, a nice way of, of sort of getting it is that it's like a, 
um, a lock and key. And the um, for the actual receptor site, you mean? Yeah, for the receptors yeah. in the in the taste buds. Yeah. So that the amino acids and things go in, and they get locked into. Yeah. A, so it's a lock and key that work together, but that's a slightly different subject. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's <clears> the thing, isn't there? There's certain things that that some people put well, perhaps hold too much stock in that actually they wouldn't they wouldn't fit in that lock mechanism. It the, the, the lock and key wouldn't fit if you want to put it in yeah. that term. But but anyway, I'll go off on a on a tangent there. Um, <laughs> we'll do a lot of that. We will do. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, we'll definitely do a lot of that. It's very interesting. Um, sorry, I don't know if I've if I've kind of cut you off and you were you were going somewhere else with that. Um, oh, yeah, possibly. Um, the so. If we go back to what the car, because we were talking about targeting big fish. Yeah. So if you, when you look at, this was the other thing that Armando spoke about that sort of blew, well, one of the things that blew my mind, there were several, but he he basically explained that we're in a juvenile fish, uh, or we're talking about cyprinids. So in, in the ju- juvenile carp or barbel or whatever, um, it's, got a small, smallish volume compared to a big fish. It's got a smaller volume of um, area for its taste buds. So it's already going to have less taste buds than a big fish. But interestingly, the as carp grow, the number of taste buds per square centimetre doesn't just grow with the growth in area. It grows exponentially. So by that, what I mean is, Let's, for the sake of argument, say uh, there's a, a one centimetre squared area of, you know, little fish and it's got a thousand um, taste buds in a little square centimetre. It's actually many times more than that. But if that, let's say it had a thousand in a square centimetre. When the fish grows and it's and uh, you would then ex, ex, and it's um, rather than the thousand per square centimetre staying in a, in a much bigger area and a bigger fish, it, rather than having a thousand, it's got two thousand or three thousand or four thousand. It grows more and more. So what you end up, I don't know the, the numbers, but that's what happens. So what that means is that in a bigger carp, it's got a bigger area. So many more taste buds than a small carp. And not only that, it's got more per square centimeter. So that means that the sensitivity of that big carp is many times more than that little carp. Mm. So a smell that may be, let's call it a smell for now, a smell in the water, something dissolved in the water that the, is of interest to, um, that you can catch small fish with, could be very strong. The fish doesn't really know what things are yet. It's still a juvenile, so it's gonna try anything. And also it doesn't smell too strong because it's not very sensitive. But the very sensitive big carp that's swimming around in the same sort of area to that fish, that smell is miles too strong and it begins to recognize that that's going to be dangerous to it. So hopefully that I've I've sort of explained that in some sort of logical way, because what that means is if you take a kilo of boilies, any old, any boilies, you put them on the size of a tabletop. So you drop them off a boat or you spot accurately your boilies to a marker float and you've got your kilo on the size of a tabletop. It's a kilo of boilies. That, Kilo boil is, is diffusing out into the water a certain concentration of all the bits and pieces that are inside it, you know, flavors and, and the, the makeup of the bait and so on. But it's quite concentrated because the bait's concentrated. So the smell is, is let's say, strong. If you take that same kilo of boilies and you put 
uh, you spread it over something the side of a size of a tennis court. So you've got one boilie here and another boilie a few feet away and another boilie 10 feet away and just boilies here and there. The, the concentration of smell around or in the area around each bait is very many times less. Um, so that less smaller smell doesn't interest the smaller carp as much. You could, it really doesn't smell it very much because it's not sensitive enough. But that big old fish that's swimming around to him, that's, that smells nice, smells like food. So that's an, an, a sort of an explanation as to why the spread out baiting um, is particularly of interest to big fish. The other thing that, or catching big fish, the other thing that does immediately is by, by if you put all your bait in a, on, a, on a tight area, the carp that comes in to feed on it will, hasn't got to move very much to open its mouth and, and take a, a load of food in. Um, it becomes much more difficult to, to, to hook them because they're not moving. And the, the hook lean's got to straighten against the weight of the leg, lead for it to, to, to in, create that initial pricking of the hook. And if the fish isn't moving much, it's got more time, suck the bait in and do what I mentioned earlier. It'll realise there's something in its mouth it doesn't like, spit it back out again. But when you spread your bait about, you you create the, the the situation where the fish picks up your bait, it likes it, it swims off to find another one, and it basically begins to swim around every time it picks up a bait. And of course, it then picks up your hook bait, swims off, and hooks itself against the lead. Um, and and it, and it also explains why uh, a bait fished off your main baited area tends to pick up bigger fish yeah. than the smaller ones. Yeah. Um, there's another big advantage in doing doing that type of baiting for bigger fish is that other fish, nuisance fish like bream and roach and maybe if you're fishing abroad, the little catfish and other fish you don't really want to catch. When you fish a, a big baited spread area of boilies, it doesn't interest those sort of fish as much either. So you don't get bothered by the bream and the roach as much as you do if you put a tight area of bait. So there's it sort of brings in lots of reasons why those those that approach the spread baiting with low levels of flavor um, and a good nutritional bait is a, is a great method for catching big carp yeah and i definitely want to go into the the concentration of receptors um mm. that in, you know potentially increase with the age of the carp but just on that subject i mean it it's well known isn't it you, know, you have your baited spot have a um your hook bait off of that that's I rarely fish any way other than that, to be honest, other yeah. than singles. Do you think, so I've always kind of presumed what's happening and just from observing the, the older, bigger fish, they just kind of hang back from the pack. They're a little bit more maybe suspicious or that, that might be anthropomorphizing a little bit, but <laughs> I've always kind of thought that they're hanging back, seeing what's what, you know, picking some food, food uh, pieces off. Am I wrong? Do you think I'm wrong? Is it actually that if they're actually over the baited area, their their receptors are just flooded with all these food signals and it's just kind of, it's not a place they want to be from from that side of it. Does that make sense? Mm, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think it, it does. Without a doubt, it makes sense. Um, how it works in reality, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Um, the But it definitely happens the way you're describing. Yeah. Um, the... And I think on area on places where there's a lot of pressure, because you got the thing to take into account as well is that a lot of the fish we're fishing for, they're not, well, let's say they're not natural carp anymore. Yeah. You know, they're not swimming around and only eating bloodworms and snails and mussels. Um, <coughs> a lot of them are a lot of their diet is, is boilies and pellets and particle. So their behavior is 
has been that um, is is adapted and changing because of the way they're being fished for and the food that they're being offered. So they're no longer reacting in the same way as they would if they were uh, natural fish. And and from that looking at it like that, I think if you're fishing an area, a club lake or a syndicate lake or a place that gets fished quite heavily, those carp. There's plenty of patches of food and, 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 and bait for them to, to feed on around the lake. Yeah. And they've got a choice. You know, they don't have to feed on it. They could just feed on their natural food. Um, although in a lot of these places, their angler's bait does begin to represent some form of what we could call natural food to them. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, to come back to the same sort of subject, if, if when it's when it's a baited, tightly baited area, it definitely creates a lot more smell. And I think the it may in some way represent a dangerous area to the fish and specifically for the really big ones for the reasons of um, we were talking about earlier, you know, the sensitivity. So, so, so this was a study done on the concentration of receptors on yeah. carp, right? Do you, do you have access to that study at all? Or I know it's in, it's Italian, isn't it? No, it's not. No, it's an Italian specialist. Uh, yeah. His name's Armando Piccini, as I say, he, but yeah. he's, he was showing studies that were done by other people. Um, I believe it was in Japan. Um, uh, I haven't actually got the studies myself. I saw, he showed them to me yeah. and I saw some of the figures and so on, but um, I can try and get them. I'll see if I can get them for you. Be amazing to, I, I mean, yeah. It is really, it, 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 it actually blew my mind and it, and it changed his talk that one hour of well, 45 minutes of his talk changed my view on lots of things to do with the subject we're talking about. Yeah. Um, it was just fascinating and it, it opened up many more questions than it did gave answers. Um, but that's what makes this all so fascinating, isn't it? It is. And I love it when science proves something that you've found to be true in in your own angling it is oh, when you yeah. find science backs that up it, and everything kind of oh that makes sense it clicks into yeah. place there's enough no better feeling as as a bait maker there's no better feeling i don't think. yeah yeah no i i agree 100 and it's um it's a bit like well, there's, a, there's an awful lot of bullshit isn't there in bait yep. and you know there, there, there just is um and i like to prove things for myself i like to give it a go and try it um uh, and again bring back the name we spoke about earlier a friend of mine Stuart Morgan's do we we might come on to that at some point but we were we were throwing around some ideas to do with moon phases but that's I know that's for another talk but yeah um Stuart and I have of a similar mind and we really like to try things and prove for ourselves whether something's actually true because there's um there is an awful lot of uh, stuff talked about bait and various things that uh, I think it becomes Chinese whispers after a while. You know, so-and-so said it, then someone else says, oh, do you know what so-and-so, oh, do you, what do you think? And then they're talking about it in the pub and the next thing you know, it's yeah. it's true and it's um, and everybody's talking about it, but it's all come from one little thing that probably wasn't true in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we spoke about this on the phone the other day, didn't we? It, yeah. It, it becomes an echo chamber and what one person spouts off as this is gospel, someone else takes that and perhaps they'll spout it off on a forum and all yeah. of a sudden you got lots of different people singing from the same hymn sheet that was created by one person who may or may not have been actually correct or not mm. and um yeah it's it's interesting isn't it and it I is think there's a lot particularly in the bait world there is a lot of that um and it's a bit of a dying art isn't it rolling your own bait and i think there's probably yeah less and less people that are really pursuing their own ideas about it so yeah things just get copied and repeated don't they that, that, that they do and and these sort of things that eventually become 
like uh, they seem to become almost like a truth. When, yeah. when, like you say at the beginning, actually, the, actually there wasn't a lot of foundation to it. Um, and I'm like you, I like I like to go into the sciencey part of it and try and try and, and get some proof. It's a bit like I expect you were going to ask me this as a, as a question after our previous talks, but it's on the should we talk about the nutritional side of it now? It is relevant to when we're talking about big fish, or do you want to bring that in it later is. on? Yeah, no. Let's go on to that. Can I just ask one question first uh, yeah. about the? And you might not, you might not remember the paper exactly, but was this study for the um, the taste or the smell receptors of the carp? As I understand it, it, it's not so much the gustatory taste receptors; it's the the smell, the olfactory. My, my understanding of what I saw was it's actually for both. And the, and again, this is my understanding. It may, you know, someone, please shoot, if someone knows better, please shoot me down because I want to know, know that if I'm wrong, I want to know I'm wrong. Um, but my understanding is that the olfactory side of it, so let's call it the smell side of it, or the, the, the detection at a distance side, mm -hmm. is the fish are using the taste buds primarily or, or initially in their nasal passages. Um, and those those uh, taste buds are designed to pick up those smells that are in the water, uh, the amino acids particularly. Um, also, I believe that the nerve or the innovation system of those taste buds to the brain is different to the taste buds that's in the palate. That again, that's a specialist subject yeah. that I, I'm not a specialist, but that's what I understood. And, and what that does is it effectively means that the fish is let's call it smelling the olfaction side of a, something of interest. And it's immediately picking it up in its little brain. It doesn't think that, but that's what it's doing. And it begins to move from side to side. You know, when you barbel are typical, you watch barbel in the current or other fish in the current, they, they, they hold station, but they tend to sort of move slowly side to side. Now, if it was a trout, the trout is doing that mainly because of its eyes and it's searching the surface for a fly or a, uh, you know something floating past that it'll go up and take but barbel down on the bottom they're doing the same thing but they're using their barbules and their nasal passages and their taste buds to try and pick up um amino acids that are dissolved in the water coming towards them like a smell and once that so they're going side to side when they when they detect something they they then begin to move towards it still going side to side but trying to find the most concentration and they then move up the concentration towards the source. The way I like to think of it, or I explain to people when I talk about this is it's a bit like a, um, you, uh, there's been an accident in the snow in the mountains and the, the rescue have gone up there with their sniffer dogs and they let them free. And what the, the, the dogs go side to side and, yeah. and, and crisscross backwards and forwards. And they're looking for just a few molecules in the air of someone's breath or something underneath the snow. They detect it and they keep going sideways and side, backwards and forwards, zigzagging. <coughs> they move up the concentration level until they find a bit of snow. And that's where the person is under the snow. And that's exactly what the fish are doing with their olfactory senses in their nasal passage. But then when they get over the food or the source, they suck it into their mouth, push it against the palate. And at that point, they're using different taste buds that are designed more, if I've got it right, they're designed more for detecting the nutritional aspect of the bait. So the, the, they're still picking up the amino acids, but they're also 
analyzing the in their own little way analyzing whether this is a food item worth eating or not um, and then they either eat it or they don't and it, and it and it's not surprising that that would be the way it works because again no, no one's there to teach the carp how to find their food and what to eat they have to learn to eat it uh, find it and then eat it and this way they're able to detect their food from a distance pick it up if it's worth eating i'll eat it if it isn't i'll go and find something else um and that that will come onto something in a minute to do with that and and, to, and what the fish are actually looking for in their nutrition but um uh yeah i've, I've, I've gone a little bit off the subject but yeah stick with that for now no it's all good i i'm there's a few more things actually john sorry yeah go on, go on. yeah this is um, why it gets interesting exactly yeah and i've i've thought of a few things and i know i've forgotten them already that i was that yeah. i wanted to to cover but that's the nature of it um but we will come on to the the whole kind of nutritional side of of bakes that's yeah. a massive thing in its own right isn't it yeah. um and actually with that in mind do you just sticking with the the um the, you know potential receptor overload etc when we talk about that, I'm, or when you talk about that, I'm sure most people in their mind are thinking, oh, okay, so low low flavor levels, which you know I think we'd both you know agree with. But yeah. do you also feel that perhaps high levels of of certain solubles within the bait um, can also have a detrimental effect on on big fish? I, uh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th I think I have to, my immediate answer is yes. Um, basically because I think we would all agree that the that, that animals in general, they're, they're looking for the best nutritional package with the least amount of energy yeah. spent to get it. So, um, I mean, a good, a, the best example would probably be something like a, say a pike. If you yeah. could eat a two pound chub um, or it's got a choice of eating 20 little roach, it's going to pick the chub um because one chase and it's got a nice meal of course um and all animals are basically the same so i think we would all agree that that's basically true so if the if the the better the nutrition is in the food that the fish is eating the the more it's going to want to eat it and of course the fact that the, the, something like a carp has got it needs a certain amount of all the macro macronutrients you know it needs it needs proteins carbohydrates fats it then needs vitamins and minerals to be able to utilize the, those things and it's and it's got all these things that it needs and and my view is very much that if you give it if you could give it the perfect balanced nutritional package why would it want to eat anything else yeah <clears throat> no i completely agree i was more so let's say pre-digested fish milk very soluble yeah. right okay uh, so so i've got a bait that's very very high over 20 percent um pre-digested yeah. fish meal which is very unusual in in the world of baits right yeah, yeah it's a high Do, level yeah very high level yeah and, and to be honest i've found that that bait does very very well with the big fish and that's we've I'm spoken sure. about that before it's well documented yeah. but in theory that bait because it's breaking down and there's other solubles in there as well of course yes it's kicking out a lot of um a lot of smell signals right yes. so could that potentially be actually overwhelming the carp's receptors and they think crikey hang on that that's a little bit too potent i, I, I think you so what i mean yeah i do i do i, do. I think mm. i actually believe it comes probably comes down to your type of fishing yeah um because 
I suppose my, 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 my basic thought about that is if you're going on short sessions and you're maybe winter fishing or you're using very little bait and you want to try and get a reaction quickly, sounds fantastic. Why yeah. wouldn't you? Um, yeah. You know, attract the fish in quickly. By the time it's realized what it's eating, you've hooked it. Mm. Um, so it becomes much more about that sort of attraction side of it than it does the nutritional side of what the food contains. Um, whereas if you're fishing longer periods or you're baiting, pre-baiting, I imagine that it could become too strong and create what you're saying where the fish, it still wants it because it's good food, but it's not the ideal. It's in, that is in, yeah, we certainly haven't found that to be the case, but right. it's, it's an interesting thought process nonetheless, isn't it? Yeah, it does bring in something that when what we talked to you know, saying about taste buds and stuff, because one of the we talked about this the other day when we had our first sort of initial chat. And I, and I, and I mentioned another study that Armando brought up um, to do with the different hoppers. Shall I, shall I talk about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. OK. Um, oh, the uh, the pellets. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Is that yeah. a good time to bring that in? I think it's a great time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, right. Well, basically, he um, he threw out a question to people and he, he said, do you think, you know, how important is the nutritional side of the bait that you're using? You know, and, and there are all sorts of different views uh, to do with like what we were just saying. You know, is it just about the attraction and, you know, how important is it to have balanced or should you have high protein bait or whatever? So he said, OK, I'm going to show you something that will give you an idea on the way the carp react from some studies. And this study was done on a group of known fish, carp, small carp. I don't remember the exact size, but a small population of carp. I think there were 50 carp and in a pond. And they, the experiment was basically using three hoppers, feed hoppers, the type of hopper which the um, it's uh, it has what's called a demand feeder, so which is level with the water and the fish come up and touch the bottom of the demand plate with its uh, nose or its lips and it opens and some pellets come out. So they can... They can feed on what they want and they can have as much as they want um, when they want it. And so you can study the way that the fish react to different things. Um, and it's a, it's a fairly standard way of, of testing different ingredients because what you have to realise is that an awful amount of money is spent by fish farmers on finding the most effective and most cost effective particularly way of growing their fish. They want their fish that they're growing for food to become as big as possible, spending the least amount of money. Um, so, so lots of studies have been done on all sorts of things with fi uh, farmed fish of all sorts. Um, and, and there's lots of studies that have been done that are really interesting. So this particular study, there were three hoppers. In each hopper, um, for the sake of argument, they say there was a ton of pellet. And... The pellets were split up into three different types. Um, some of the basic ingredients were the same, but the, the, the objects of the exercise was that one hopper would be a pellet which was extremely high in protein. One hopper was extremely high in carbohydrate and very low in protein and fats. And the other was very high in fats and very low in protein and carbohydrate. So you've effectively got three types of food, high protein, high fat, high carbohydrate, uh, same amount of pellet in each one. 
and the study was to see which the fish would eat. Um, take into account that, uh, I mean, these are all sort of averages and I'm, I'm doing this from memory, so I can't remember all of it, but the if the water's um, a nice temperature, about 18 degrees, carp in general need something like 35, 36% of protein. Um, most, they need quite a lot of carbohydrate and a bit of fat and the vitamins and minerals that go with it. But let's say they need, for the sake of argument, 35% of protein. So um, when the fish start initially feeding on these uh, demand feeders, these three hoppers, as you would expect, they take a third from each one to start with, or on average, they have a, a little bit out of each one. But over a period of time, they begin to choose more of certain hoppers. And over a long enough period of time, they begin to choose the percentage of protein, carbohydrate and fat that we know, or fish biologists know, is what the carp require in that temperature of water. Now, when I when Armando showed this study and I looked at it and was listening to what he's saying, I thought that it, it pretty much blew my mind <laughs> because basically within, and the period of time was really short. I mean, he, again, he threw a question out to the audience. He said, you know, how long do you reckon it takes before the carp begin to pick that amount of protein, that amount of carbohydrate and that amount of um, fats? And, and there were all sorts of answers that came back. But from memory, the, the length of time was not much more than a week. So within a week, these fish were just by, well, however the mechanism works that they were doing it, they were, were picking up or feeding on the right amount of nutrition they actually need. And interestingly, when they repeated these studies in water at different temperature, so for example, when the water temperature goes below 10 degrees, fish require very little protein. Or much less protein again i can't remember exactly but it's something like under 10 percent of protein same thing happens in in 10 degrees water after a certain period of time the fish were taking 10 percent of the protein pellet more of the carbohydrates they need more of that and more of the fat um so i find that fascinating and it brought into my thoughts all sorts of things about well if i'm offering the carp in my boilie the right sort of um, balance of proteins, fats and carbohydrates. I mean, ideally to do with the temperature of the water as well, but there we're getting a bit over the top, I think. But, 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 but you know, offering them the right sort of food that they want in the right balance, they're going to choose mine rather than anything else. Yeah, interesting. So this, presumably this uh, lake, pond, what have you, that this test was done in, I mean what other food sources did that water have present that's what they were feeding on the pellet so so they had that but were there naturals present within the the lake not as far as i know no it right. was a, an artificial pond yeah which is absolutely fascinating isn't it but i can always kind of think we're fishing in lakes where you know potentially nine times out of ten if not more there's other anglers fishing isn't it we're all using yeah. our own bait there's lots of different things going in on top of that you've obviously got the natural foods uh sources of the lake yeah do you feel that that would <clears throat> have a bearing on things so say say in a in a kind of more clinical environment yes this is the you know the perfect amount of protein per perfect amount of carbs and fats 
do you think actually if we're looking at what bait best to use do you think we we go with those findings or do you think well hang on we have to consider that actually it's very different in a real fishing environment yeah i do think it's different it's um uh i mean the fit the, the, the fish in most places they can decide if they're going to eat our bait on or just leave it alone and then just eat naturals yeah um, if they want to um and also in the naturals they're going to find lots of the important things as well like because it's it's fresh live food isn't it so yeah. they're going to find the enzymes and vitamins and minerals and things they need that will then help them to digest a lot of the other food um uh i think I think it's sometimes it's where they're in an area, you're fishing a lake where you're competing with lots of other anglers, the fish can decide to eat it or not. Um, I mean, interestingly, over the years, when I, I don't do it so much now, but I used to fish, go go to places and fish, you know, book a week with friends or whatever, and we'd fish and fish for some big, we've been to some places where there's some really big fish. Um, we caught big fish. And the time, the, there's no sort of, real truths is there but there but 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 it happened too often that the biggest fish we caught came towards the end of our week um and i won because our approach myself and my friends that i went with our approach was very much uh offering the best balanced nutritional food bait so we would generally go for that 30 35 percent of protein yeah. probably made up out of fish meals um you know, all good quality, fresh ingredients, a low level of flavor, low levels of hydrolyzed products generally, um, just a good food that the fish are going to feed on. And I wonder if the fish are swimming around, trying different things, but over that, you know, it's enough time, it's four or five days of trying this, they're going to keep coming back and actually begin to recognize that this is something they really want to eat. And yeah. that's when they become more com confident on it and you you basically trip them up and catch them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, as well, say, let's just make maths easy. <laughs> let's say uh, uh, a carp, let's say a 20 pound carp needs a kilo mm. of food a day. This, that's probably way mm. off. Mm. Um, but let's just say it needs a kilo of food a, a day. 35% of that um, being from protein is going to mm. be great. So 350 grams of protein. Yep. If it's swimming around and it's eating, you know, food item A, that might be 90% protein. Mm. Unlikely it would be that high, but it might be very high in protein. Then they might go and eat something that's actually very high in fat uh, and maybe some carbohydrates. Then they're eating another food item mm. that's... Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I so do. Collectively, it's, you know, if they're in a water that's seeing a lot of carbohydrate-based food items you know, mm. perhaps then they would seek out something that's a lot higher protein. Do you see what I'm trying to say? I do, I do exactly, yeah. yeah and, do. and so, yeah, I'm not trying to um, derail the, the findings because I think it's fascinating. And when you first told me the other day, you know, I was sort of dwelling on that for a while because it really is fascinating stuff. And the fact that the carp figured this out through eating just, you know, it backs up all of our ideas, doesn't it? But It, do, it does really, yeah. I think yeah. you're right, though, in what you're, you're saying is that they're, the, the, there are so many factors that come into play. And, and yeah. when there are other anglers out there using different baits and pellets and particles, and then there's all the natural food, and there's a whole load of stuff that the fish are feeding on. Yeah. Um, it does throw everything into a bit of a sort of a mess. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I've, what we've, I say we, as in, you know, a few close friends who fish, we all fish in the same sort of way with the same sort of bait. Um, our experience over the years is that this approach with this type of bait 
definitely works really well on commercial type fisheries and definitely picks out bigger fish. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, sort of, you know, the whys and the wherefores is we can talk about for hours. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, of course. It definitely yeah. works. So to just to give, so, and you're predominantly, you know, talking about lower flavor slash attractor levels, right? Yeah. To, to give people an idea, what, what is a lower flavor level? Are you, are you able to kind of, and obviously it depends on the flavor because some it are does. stronger than others, but I, I, are you able to give people, you know, something to work off of? Yeah. Um, I think the first, the first thing I would say that is, um, I've probably become less and less flavor orientated over the years. Um, flavors, there's so many different types of flavor. You could, you could, you could pick a, a basic or good uh, fruit flavor, pick a, pick a fruit flavor, for example. And there's lots of ways that fruit flavor could be could be made up it could be very relatively simple it could be oh, extremely complex thousands of possibilities yeah and there's so many possibilities that although to us it's got it smells of a particular fruit um it, it could be very simple or extremely complex and in the complex ones it could be one or two of the the components that are actually something the fish find of interest yeah. um but in, in in general, if if you go to a flavor house and ask for a, um, uh, some samples, ask them to send you ten samples of a banana flavor, they can. Um, you might find that none of them are any good for when you try them and you do some experiments on of the car to see if they. Yeah, there might be one, there might be two, but most of them probably won't be very attractive to car. Yeah. Um, um, and I I so I tend to try and stick with things I'm. 100% confident in that I know um, it's going to be an attraction, an ad. If I'm going to put it in my bait, I want it to be complimentary and to add to the bait because I firmly believe that if you're using a good base mix, you really don't need a flavour in it Yeah. because it's not the flavour that's going to catch you the fish. The flavour, going back to what we began with, the flavour I think is more to help with the initial olfaction attraction from a distance and it becomes and it's the nutrition of the bait that becomes the key bit when the fish starts to feed on it um and so i tend to work start with what i hope is a really good balanced nutritional base mix uh, i like to add um, a little bit of a um a hydrolyzed product either of something like a hydrolyzed krill or a hydrolyzed yeast um, but in a low level, and then there'll be a very small amount of flavour. And when I say small amount, it could, it, as you said, it depends on the flavour, but it could be as little as half a mil to six eggs. It could be one of my friends I used to make bait for, I don't anymore because I'm not doing it in the UK anymore, but I used to make bait for him. He used to, for six eggs, he used to talk about, and we're not talking essential oils, we're talking other flavour, other types of flavour. Um, he, he would want like two or three drops in six eggs. You literally, you, could, you couldn't smell it in the bait, um, but he wanted it in there um, and he had fantastic results using that. Um, and the thing I always come back to when, as, 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 to try and give, give an idea uh, is, you know, I've had a, a bait factory for 35 years um, or, or about that sort of length of time. And so you'd have pallets of semolina, maize, micronized maize, soya flour, fish meals, meat meals, hydrolyzed all sorts pallets of different ingredients all bait factories have problems with vermin um interestingly you could have 
a pallet of maize meal next to a pallet of fish meal and they will destroy your pallet of maize yeah. meal yeah um, and hardly touch the fish meal yeah and yet the fish meal stinks and the maize meal just tastes like sand yeah. um, but those rats and mice want the nutrition that's in the maize meal um and but it doesn't taste of anything or smell of anything to us but they're recognizing it as food and i think carp is very much the same thing um <coughs> some of the best sort of bait ingredients and 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 attractors really don't have very much smell or taste i mean you put together a, a milk protein bait with casein and calcium caseinate yeah. and soy isolates and all these things you taste that and you go well, why would you bother eating that yeah um and yet it's extremely attractive absolutely so yeah in answer to your question i think that yes the flavor is can be useful um but it has to be a good quality flavor and i would definitely be using it at low levels and the, fla the flavors that i use i'm not putting in more than i mean there's one flavor where i put about three mil in um it's a sort of maple type flavor uh, which which seems to work really well when it's a bit stronger but everything else is really low levels what's that did you say three mil yeah yeah about per, three. per kilo per six yeah about yeah let's about call it a kilo of bait yeah about 800 grams of bait yeah um it works that flavor works really well if you put 10 mil in um but i but to me it seems to work just as well if you put three mil so i prefer to put three mil yeah yeah um most of mine i use around about two or three mil yeah yeah but obviously i mean they vary in strength so much from from one to the other the, the, the difficulty is i mean i'm i'm just at the moment, I'm just uh, organising a uh, manufacturer of our products with a new manufacturer in France, which is uh, so we're going to be distributing out to the shops in January and February, which is really exciting. Um, so I'm, um, I've been for the last year or last few years actually, I've been talking to various um, flavour houses and manufacturing companies to on my own flavours. And you, the thing, the thing you have to understand about flavours as well is you'll you can get a sample of a flavour, um, or depending on the components and the way that it's made up, the, the manufacturer, most flavors, or in fact, all flavors will have some form of um, base or solvent, you know, whether it's oil or MPG yeah. or alcohol or whatever, whatever the base happens to be. Um, and by, it's not as simple as just increasing the main components, but effectively by reducing the amount of base that's there and increasing the amount of key ingredients, you're increasing the concentration of the, the flavor. Um, so by having a stronger, let's call it a stronger or more powerful flavor, you can create the effect from the flavor that you want by using lower and lower levels. And, and let's say like my flavor that I use at three mil and works really well at three mil, I could probably create the same effect if I asked the manufacturer to produce yeah. the same flavor at half the concentration <laughs> yeah. and I could put half the amount in. Um, that's which is why it's so difficult to talk about flavors and, and how much to put in a bait. Of course. Yeah, of course. And I mean, in my opinion that, you know, that there, there may be, let's say there's, I don't know, a hundred different components of a certain flavor. Mm. There's, quite probably in reality only a few of those different components that are actually doing the legwork yeah, and, really, no, yeah. and what 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 concentration are they in that yeah. that, that that's the important thing isn't it yeah um, yeah and, and sometimes there's things in there that you you would never think was in there you know yeah. um i mean something like you know an organic acid like butyric acid say 
which stinks. You know, if you've got, if you've, if, if people listening have smelled butyric acid, it's, so you definitely don't want it on your hands. Right. Um, and yet it's in, it's in flavors like creamy flavors, buttery flavors, cheesy flavors, scopexy type flavors is a tiny little bit of butyric. And you can, and there can be a tiny bit of butyric in all sorts of fruity flavors, but you, as a smell, you'd never know it was in there, but it is. And that's one of the little ingredients that as a natural, it's one of the organic acids are part of what is produced in nature when things decompose and break down. So fish know that that chemical butyric acid is actually food. It represents a food. Um, so like you just said, if that happens to be one of the components out of a hundred, just that one little molecule of butyric acid that's in there um, could be something that's, that's causing the fish to be interested absolutely and that i mean there's many many things that that are much more potent than um than butyric acid as well that are used in microscopic yeah, just very yeah. very small concentrations yeah yeah um, and some of them things like soliton etc extremely expensive yeah um but yeah it's it's interesting you mentioned bases there do you have a preferred base for your flavors ethanol or you know fractionated I, coconut i, I, I think yeah I mean, that, that's difficult as well because there's some oil-based flavors that are exceptionally good yeah um and surprisingly even in cold water because yeah. the, that again is a little bit of a one of those things we talked about at the beginning where you know the general consensus would be well all flavors won't be any good in winter because they they go hard um that uh, uh and alcohol um, base flavors are the best in winter because they they they're you know they're, they're soluble they diffuse quicker um my experience hasn't been necessarily like that the there's a couple of oil-based flavors that are exceptional in winter in winter fishing and i think it's probably i don't know but my my thought is that the these flavors these this particular oil-based flavor is extremely complex and I think some of the components, as we were just saying, some of the components may be soluble even in very cold water um, and are diffusing out of the bait. And that's what the, the fish is being attracted to. And yes, some, some oils are will go hard in cold water, but it but we're when we're saying oil, it's just a very general term. Yeah. Um, and it could be other things within the flavor that, 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 that are working. And the same type of thing when it comes to um, alcohol-based flavors in that yes they'll be more volatile and the volatiles will come off quicker so it smells strong especially to us um, and if you're on the fish and that flavor comes out of your bait quickly and attracts the fish within a certain amount of time yes excellent but if your bait's been in the water for 24 hours and the fish hasn't fed yet maybe most of the smell's gone exactly yeah so so i tend to think <clears throat> generally a blend of different things is a good way to go um not just one and 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 i suppose if i had to sort of nail it to a mask i would say that generally the alcohol-based flavors i i haven't had great success or i don't tend to use them so much anymore if it's just alcohol-based i prefer to have it if i was going to use it i'd definitely blend it with something that was going to last longer in the bait like an oil-based or mpg-based flavor yeah i mean to be fair i think a lot of the uh ethanol based flavors they have oils in um yeah. it's like a bun spice on it you know yeah. there's there's numerous different oils in that um sure. 
and I think obviously the the ethanol base it just it does act to disperse it quickly. So mm. in the winter, you kind of nailed exactly what I was thinking. I prefer a, a blend as well. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I like. I mean, our strawbomo is is part oil based, part ethanol based. Is it? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and it works well. And I mean. I've said about this uh, many, many times, but cinnamon leaf essential oil is probably one yeah, of the yeah. best things that I've used, me personally, in, in winter. And obviously that's an oil, it? it's an essential oil. It's I've not... Never tried that. Have you not? No. Oh, it surprises me. That's one I haven't tried, yeah. Yeah, cinnamon. Um, so there was... Um, someone put me onto it many, many years ago. Uh, yeah, cinnamon leaf. The leaf is better than the bark. Um, okay. Essential oil seems to be in winter. Yeah, phenomenal. Obviously, that's an oil. Um, it's not solid. What you can put that in the fridge, and it's mm. nice and fluid. Um, so, yeah, I think some of the uh, some of the oil based flavors are very interesting. And as you said, they have a longer kind of activity window because they don't just wash out the bait super duper quick. They kind yeah. of retain in there. And then, particularly if you're fishing over silt, obviously that's desirable as well because it, the the silt smell doesn't seem to permeate as much yeah. when you're using a, an oil based flavor. So. Yeah, I think the other thing is they all have their place, don't they? I think they all have their their place. That's a, actually I'll ask you what you think about it because that thing you just said about silt. Um, I don't know. My thought about my my own thought about it is that it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, there's you know there's crappy, horrible, nasty, black, smelly silt that I wouldn't you know we don't want to fish in, but. Most silt is just breaking down food and there's there's blood worms, all sorts of stuff in there that the fish want to eat. And when your bait comes back smelling of, of if it smells of nasty silt, then you want to cast it somewhere else. But yes, if it's just in general, what I would call good silt, the fact that it smells of the silt, I don't think it makes any difference. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Well, I think there's different levels of that, though, to be fair. So yeah, probably. I, I agree. And I mean, they they will sift through, you know, inches and inches and inches or feet even of silt to yeah. to get to the blood well whatever it is they want to feed on um the silt doesn't put them off and that you know you've let's say you've got some solubility to your bait which you will have and you definitely yeah. want to have i believe that their sensory apparatus their receptors are so sensitive they 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 they're kind of detecting it past the silt oh, i don't think yeah. i don't think it's overriding them and they can't smell or taste anything else i don't yeah. think that at all but let's say let's say you're you let's say a flavor then because we're talking about flavors let's say you're using a flavor because presumably it, you feel it enhances your bait um i think it's it's probably a good thing or it can be a good thing to still have that as a as a as an override i'm kind of contradicting myself here but still to have that as an overriding uh an overriding aspect of the bait i think can only be a good thing but I, I, as i've just said i think they can still yeah. detect everything anyway so does it really matter i'm a little Probably bit not, not sure uh, on yeah. that. to be to be totally honest at the moment i'm confused and a bit unsure about that i think i think that might might be more your confidence human yeah yeah um and the fact that the bait comes back and you smell it and you go, wow, that smells good. So it's obviously good. Um, and, and then things become a self-fulfilling prophecy, don't they? Because they can. Yeah. So, so I, I sell a few flavors and when people say, oh, you know, I'm fishing here. What should I use? I'll always ask them, what are you fishing over? What's your lake like? They're yeah. fishing in the silt and then they use something oil based. Yeah. You know, the amount of people I've had message back, say, oh, you, that, that flavor's amazing. You know, it was out in the sill all night, came back, smell it, still smelt just as good. And now they are, you know, rightly or wrongly, very confident in that particular flavor. Yeah, yeah. It's that can become a self-fulfilling. 
yeah that's a that's a confidence boost isn't it yeah yeah um, interestingly about silt um just tell you a little story i think it was yeah. um because because most anglers when you when you yeah we've all we all fish areas where there's there's silt i mean sometimes it's better to fish in the silt than in the hard bits um, depending where the food is and also most people will tend to fish the hard bits so fishing the soft bits is not a bad way to go um but yeah going back years and years i'm pretty sure this was frank uh, warwick um fishing at cuttle mill um i had a discussion with frank oh, a long long time ago and i'm pretty sure it was frank and he was talking about the silt and the silt in there apparently was really deep in certain places and of course they were trying you know pop-ups on the silt and trying to so the silt so light leads and not letting it bury um various flavors and things as well but the the interesting bit that he, that he told me was what he did he said he suddenly sort of thought well when i throw my boilies in they're all going down through the silt so perhaps the fish are feeding down deeper down in the silt yeah so he stuck a four ounce lead on with like a two inch long hook link just chucked it in the silt and that was what he was catching all his fish on yeah, he, and he's brilliant for that kind of thing, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Just like thinking outside the box. Going yeah, yeah, and it, and it makes Amazing. sense. I mean, I've watched yeah. carp on a on a canal of the um, Kennet and Avon Canal near Hungerford years and years ago. Walking along the edge of the canal, you could see patches of uh, mud coming up. And when you stood and watched, the carp and the tench were buried up to like halfway down the fish yeah. with their tail up, rest of the head and halfway down the body was actually buried in the silt. And they were down there sort of eating bloodworm or whatever they were eating. But, you know, a bait on top of the silt would have, wouldn't even have seen it. I mean, you know, your bait needed to be down there where they were feeding. Yeah, definitely. And you see this kind of silt staining of their mouth as well, don't you? Yeah, 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 you do. Yeah. Um, there was there was a lake I fish and there was, a, it wasn't that silty at all, but there was a silt area. Um, it was quite an interesting lake, actually, as far as the topography went. But anyway, on the few capture photos that there was, it, it just, I know it sounds crazy, but it did look like, oh, hang on a minute, that that's quite po possibly feeding within the silt. Yeah, um, yeah. Have you, I mean, I'm going off on a tangent here, but yeah. have, have you found through targeting fish that certain fish kind of have their preferential areas of feeding or, or anything like that? Uh, what do you mean? Um, in terms of perhaps a certain fish that you're after it gets caught from oh. a certain area or um on a certain method oh, crikey um so i mean i guess we're talking about silt i guess what i'm asking is do you think there's certain fish that perhaps prefer feeding in the uh, silt certain ones that, no. that prefer avoiding or <laughs> not you really they're all just i don't there. really think that um no. i mean basically they're going to feed where the food is yeah um, and often the i think they will feed in different ways because when Something that stood out to me is when I first went out to fish in France and I would go out with, take a little bloat, a little inflatable, and we started taking a prodding stick yeah. to feel what the bottom was like. And typically you would have like a gravel pit where, you know, it'd be deep water and it would be quite silty. And then you would, it would start to get shallower and shallower and you go up the side of a bar and then that's where the weed would all be just sort of off the side of the bar. And then you come on, on top of the bar and on the top of the bar were great big stones and gravel hard. So you would, you would then start on the shallow bit with the, the prodding stick and it would be going clank, 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 clank on the gravel. Mm. Then it would begin to, you'd get to the weed and it would begin to be ching, 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 ching down into the sort of sandy. Yeah. And it went, ching, 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 and that was like a sandy firm, but sandy bit just off the edge of the weed. And then it would go into the silt. And that little firm sandy bit was, if you put it there, that was a bite. 
that's that, what I mean. That's is the, the, yeah. That's exactly what I meant. I yeah, that was, that was very. And cool. I first noticed. Yeah, I first noticed that with um, using the prodding stick, and it was very definitely a uh, that spot, that little spot. It's a bit like if you can, if you can't use boats, and you often you can cast out past a weed bed, and um, you then drag it back till the or pull it back just so the lead just catches in the weed. And, and at that point there, just right next to the edge of the, the weed is often yeah. a sort of silty bit. is isn't a sandy bit that isn't quite silty enough for the for the weed, but it's not the gravel. It's just that little edge. Yeah. And, and I, that's yeah, I reckon if you went and asked 100 carp anglers, 90 of them would, you know, would, would back that up. I think that mm. just seems to be a universal thing that applies to all lakes, doesn't it? It's one of mm, those things so. for whatever yeah. reason. Well, yeah. it's also, it also brings in that thing where, you know, have you found a clear, you know, everyone's looking for a nice clear hard spot. Well, mm. you know, they tend to often find a clear, clear spot, but there's clear spots and clear spots. And also on the edge of clear spots is not clear spots. And often if you can get it onto the edge of that really thick weed or the edge of something, so you're not stood out like a sore thumb in the middle of nowhere, um, that can make a big difference. The, the, yeah, the visual. But I mean, also sometimes I think maybe it's, Let's say the, the the carp is sucking your your hook bait in, and there's perhaps some detritus that it's sucked in as well. Yeah, it's probably not going to notice your hook length and hook, at, or it's not going to be as alarmed about it if there's lots of other little bits in its mouth. Yeah, Let's say yeah. it's on a real kind of gravel area where that's the only thing, and it's. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I, I do know whether... exactly what you mean. I think you can. It's a bit like when you fish in in weed. I mean, generally you're going to use very strong tackle mm. um, in thick weed, but you can get away with it really strong tackle because the, the fish can't play with your bait in the same way as they can on a clear bit yeah um so i think you're exactly right yeah yeah, yeah. i think that the the longer you can keep that hook bait in the carp's mouth without it being you know spitting it out or being concerned i think the more likelihood you have of hooking it ultimately yeah that to a degree <laughs> that, that that that's that's uh I don't know if you did that deliberately, but it's very good if you did. No, no. <laughs> it brings us on to the bit, the bit about hook link length and all that. Oh, and I'm not that professional, but no, that's brilliant. Oh, no, that was great. <laughs> I was well impressed. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hook, hook length uh, is important, isn't it? It's uh, yeah, yeah, and I and I when you when you reflect on how the carp or how fish feed and what they're doing. It becomes, I mean, I'm sure you, you like lots of anglers, will have fished, say, with a, a, a float and maggots for roach and rudd yeah. and little fish. So you, you, you imagine you're fishing with a, a really delicately presented um, single maggot on a size 20 hook or whatever, a little tiny float with a few little shots on it. Um, you, you know, you catch a few roach and then you've got it out there and you, you don't get a bite. So you want to pull it in and cast it out again. So you pull it in and your maggot's flat. There's nothing left. It's been sucked dry. Well, yeah. and your float hasn't even bobbed, hasn't even moved. Well, that little tiny roach, to, to do that to your maggot, he's had it in the back of its throat and crushed it with his pharyngeal teeth. Um, so your hook was well inside that fish's mouth and you didn't even get a nibble and you didn't even see anything on your delicately, delicately balanced float. So if you then take that to sort of carp, of experts are spitting stuff out yeah. i think if you leave the the hook bait and the hook in its mouth for too long it's only theory but 
I reckon it's going to just spit it out because it realises there's something in there it doesn't want. And that's the reason why, for me, I fiddle about with the length of the rig, but only by small amounts because depending on how the fish are feeding and the conditions type of bottom I'm fishing on, I think it makes a difference. I want the fish to suck my hook bait in and the hook to go just past it into its mouth. And at that point, I want the hookling to strain against the lead. So it hooks it straight away. Because if I'm leaving if the hooklings much longer, the fish can have that bait in its mouth possibly for too long. And it then has got time to spit it back out again. You see what I mean? I do. But, it, I mean, if, if we're working off of the presumption that we're trying to get the fish moved. So, I mean, if, if you're pouring in, um, you know, 10 kilos of, of a particle on one spot, cup potentially yeah. isn't moving much. If you've got your bait spread around, as you mentioned before, I guess I'm working off of the presumption that we're getting that, that carp is moving. If that yeah, carp yeah, is okay. moving, the longer that the, in my opinion, um, the longer that that hook bait is in its yeah. mouth, the better. If yeah, it's moving, yeah. if it's stationary, I guess I, I understand what you're saying because it's presuming you're not got your rig to kind of hook on it on the um, the way out. Yeah. I, can under, I can understand what you mean. It can sort of figure it, and they're masters with their mouth, aren't they? You know, they they, they, they are, yeah. and and it's a bit like you know you wouldn't generally use a really hook, long hook link if you were using a PVA bag. Um, no, you no, 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 like yeah. three inches long or something, really short, because the fish is literally dipping down slightly, sucking at the bait that's free, the hook bait flies in and hooks it immediately. Um, in theory. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, in theory. Well, it's all theory, isn't but, it? But the, just... other, the, other, the other thing that I think is important, and, um, and <coughs> when we're talking about big fish, if you're talking about a great big carp, um, uh, yeah, that's relative to the size of the water or whatever you're fishing for, but let's say a big fish, it... it, it it depends partly on its morphology, on its shape. So it could, if it's got a belly on it, its mouth, when it's swimming along, is actually quite a long way from the bottom. Yeah. Um, and to feed, depending on how it feeds and what it's going to feed on, the fish's position in the water is actually different. It's a bit like, you know, sometimes you see them tip right up with their tail up in the air. And other times they swim along and they almost don't, they dip very slightly and they suck at the whatever they're feeding on, and then they carry on moving. Yeah. I think when we're using the spread baiting pattern and fish, we're encouraging fish to move. I tend to use a slightly longer hook link simply because a great big fish could have its mouth a fair way from the bottom, and I don't want it sucking at my bait and the bait not going in its mouth. Yeah. Um, and so specifically in that sort of situation, I mean, may not be lot. I mean, I, I would tend to start with a hook link. Yeah. If I'm fishing for big fish, I'd probably, I might even start 12 inches, 10 inches, 12 inches long. And then we'll see, um, you know, if I hook a couple and they fall off, then I would think again and I might change it. But is it, yeah. Is that long though? It, I mean, maybe it is in this day and age, but yeah, I don't ten, know. I don't know. Uh, that's the sort of length of rig I would generally use yeah um even for even when i'm fishing for barbel I mean, most barbel anglers use long hook links but mm. i've not found that it, i found that i stick to quite a short hook link do, do you um, are you using a kind of i mean what what are you using are you using a supple braid for this no uh i my favorite is a um coated braid it's called ultra skin it's from gardner it's a uh, ultra skin soft it's um right. 
you strip back, I strip back a couple. I, 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 I'm not a one for complicated rigs. I, I believe that if you if the fish is feeding, you're getting it confidently feeding. You don't need complicated. You just yeah. need enough to get so it gets the hook and the bait in its mouth, um, a sharp hook, and then strong enough tackle to land the fish you're after. Um, my my rigs haven't really changed probably for 20, 25 years. Um, they're very boring, simple, um, but they work for me. And, and the, 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 the key thing being I like to use a long hair uh, because I think that's really important to allow the hook to do its job properly. By long, uh, but if you let the, 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 I like a gap between, let's say, the top of the boilie and the bottom of the bend of the hook to be at least a centimetre, half an inch, um, possibly even more, but then I would probably lengthen the hook link. But that's that's much longer than I see most people using. So yeah, so I understand that's the kind of done thing, but why do you do that? In, ter in terms of, say, you're going to lengthen the rig. Why? What, why do you then Because the fish is, when it sucks gap. the bait in its mouth, it's not, to me, it's not, it's not picking it up in its lips. It's, it sucks it back into its mouth because it's going to taste it. Yeah. And so, if yeah. it with a big fish, it's to get it, if it's got a bloody great big mouth, you know, <laughs> yeah, four, yeah. four inches across. I mean, I use, I use sometimes 50 mil boilies. 50. I don't use them all the time. But when I fish on the yeah. river abroad, I mean, when I fish for barbel, I've, I've still used 50 mil boilies for barbel. I'm, I'm with you on big baits. I've never gone to 50 though. That's uh It's not. Yeah, but next time bit. you catch a carp, I know. Open their mouth up. Have a look. Have how a look big how big it is. Mouth. Huge. Yes. Yeah, and, and take into account that when we were when I first fished at Taplow, and we were using balls of paste around our hook. I mean, I used to in my little coffee grinder. I used to grind up. I used to go to the fish, um, the aquarium shop, and buy some pellets. I mean, it was a great paste. I used to make. It was. I used to grind up pellets. And then we used to buy, it was called PYM. I don't know if you can get it anymore. Phillips yeast mixture. Yeah, it was a yeast conditioner for birds yeah. and a little pot. We used to put that with my ground up uh, pellet and either mix it with water, because I found out after a while, that if you mixed it with water, sorry, if you mixed it with eggs, it didn't break down as quickly. Yeah. I, I mean, at that point, I didn't really, no one, had, the boilies didn't exist. So it wasn't about boiling. It was literally about slowing down the, the dissolving time so I'd, i either mixed it with eggs to make it firmer or i'd mix it with water and the size of that i was putting on was bigger than that i mean it was as big as a tangerine i mean we're talking yeah. probably three inches across and sometimes you'd get a bite within 10 minutes i mean that hadn't dissolved it was still three inches big and that fish was just sucking it straight in and, yeah. and even when you look at barbel that that obviously is not as big as a carp but there's plenty of anglers that use luncheon meat and they literally Oh, take you know the size of a tin of luncheon meat. You take the, the luncheon meat out, cut it in half, and put a half on the hook. That is a big bait. That's a lot bigger than than two inches. That is a big bait, and that's for a barbel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who? I mean, they definitely have smaller mouths, don't they? Barbel. Yeah, it's um, so. I mean, I'm not saying it's the it's the it's the it's the, it's the uh, ultimate thing to do. It's not. It's just an option. <clears throat> but. Um, what I think about the whatever bait you're using and the the, the, the hook and so on, by the, the bait's going to go into its mouth far enough that even if you used a one-inch hair, even if you used a two-inch hair, probably wouldn't make any difference. You'd hook it the same because the bait's gone back into the middle of its mouth 
and your hooks inside the lips. I get it. I understand. But I mean... Confidence. It's confidence. It confidence. Because really yeah. when you show that to... I mean, I when I've done some talks in the past, I took some of my old kit. I mean, my first cart rods, I, I bought two Simpson 11-foot, one-and-three-quarter-pound glass blanks. <laughs> one-and-three-quarters. There you go, 11-foot. Hmm. Um, and I built them myself, and I used, and I used them. So I, I sometimes take my rods, and I've got a couple of old heron bite buzzers, you know, and uh, some reels and things. So I show them and I show people the rig I used to use. And the first rig I used for carp, it was about 18 inches long. So it was quite a long hook length of nylon tied straight to a hook. But the hair, and it was at the time when I wasn't, as I said, I, I lived in Switzerland for a couple of years. And I, and I, while I was away, it was like the early, early or the mid seventies, around that time was when the hair came out. And when I came back to England, I didn't, realized that this sort of revolution had happened i'd heard about it i knew all about it but i hadn't seen anybody using it so my first hair rig i literally used about four inches i mean if you measure that that is a long hair four yeah. inches of hair of a, of a light, light line attached to about i had about a 14 mil little boilie first time i used boilies so an 18 inch long rig a little hook four inch long hair and a boilie and that was what I used. And I used that for months and I caught loads of carp. And it was only when I saw other people using a hair rig, I said, oh, is that how you do it? And it was, <laughs> and it was, and it was a lot shorter. Yeah. And that works as well, but it worked fine. Yeah. And who uses long hairs these days? Yeah. I use quite long hairs, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Not that long, not four inches. Not right. No, no, that's I, I, no, no, that's, that's what I used at that time, but I wouldn't <laughs> do it that long now, but I do think the gap or the, the, the separation between the hook and the, the boilie is actually really important. And yeah, and yes, you catch plenty of fish with the hook, with the bait on the back of the hook and all the rest of it. But I think when you're fishing the way I've described that I like to fish, you know, getting the fish feeding on spread boilie, boilie, uh, yeah. Area, and they're picking up and moving on. Moving. We're better yeah. off using a longer hair. Um, uh, yeah. 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 Do you know what? I'm the same as you. I don't, I don't change rigs at all. But whenever I do kind of go down that thought process and think, you know, could I, could I tweak this? I always yeah. eventually, no matter what I do, I always come back. Well, I always come back to the same rigs anyway. But I also come back to the same thought of, do you know what? Actually, I think if put the hard work into the bait get them give them something that they really want to eat with gusto yeah and then all of these little finite things about the rig kind of largely become i'm, I'm 110 percent in agreement with you yeah. um yeah. i reckon but basically it's difficult to say because it depends where you're fishing but if 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 on 10 proper takes you know everybody's going to lose fish um but if you're if you're losing a fish so you lose 10 percent, so one fish out of 10 bites yeah, it's just, it just happened to pick it up wrong or whatever happened, it, it just, you didn't catch it. But much more than that, um, you know, I'd start to consider either the baiting approach or consider maybe the length of the rig and or the presentation. Maybe I should be using it just recently. I've been, yeah. I've not been using pop-ups and, 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 and wafters uh, at all. My fishing over the last few years has literally been all with bottom baits and, it took me a while to get the confidence back to do it because I was doing so well using a finely balanced pop-up and so on. But, you know, I thought, bloody hell, you know, fish is probably eating a hundred of my boilies on the bottom before it picks up my hook bait. Why should I be using something different than hook bait? 
than, than, a, than a boiler. Yeah. So I literally yeah. don't do anything. And, I, and for, as I say, for a couple of years, I haven't done anything with my hook bait at all. All I do is take one of my normal freebies, stick it on the hair. The only difference I do like, to, I do particularly like to use a paste wrap. But, but apart from that, it's just a boilie out of the bag. Oh, we'll, we'll have to talk about paste. I'm a big fan of paste as well. But do you... Oh, I was going to ask you something there and I've gone. I'm not even going to pretend I can remember well, what I'll tell it you was. what, that'd be a good place to have a little gap because I, I'm, I'm, I need another cup of tea and I also <laughs> have to go and visit the little boys' room. Yeah, well, I'm on my... Uh, I've actually just opened an, a second beer. So if you want to join me, you're oh, welcome to. I'm but... going to go and find a can of Guinness. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll see you in a moment. I'll go to Lou as well. Okay. Cheers, John. Psst. If you're still here and you happen to be listening on the Apple Podcast app or Apple iTunes, please take a few moments, leave me a review, let me know how we're doing with this podcast. A, it's really nice to hear from you, and B, it helps this podcast stay relevant and stay in the ratings. If it doesn't stay in the ratings, it falls behind, um, people don't listen to it, and obviously that means there's not much point me doing it anymore. So if you can take a moment to leave me a review, I'd really appreciate it. If you're not listening on an Apple device, I don't think you can leave us a review, unless there's some means that I'm not aware of, Um, but Nonetheless, I appreciate you listening. It does mean a lot to me. And uh, yeah, feel free to, to reach out on social media. That's it. I look forward to bringing the next episode to you very soon.